Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. This is Jason Bresler, Leadership Under Fire's founder. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast. In late October of 2012, firefighters and fire officers from across the country gathered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania for Leadership Under Fire's inaugural summit. The Making Yourself Hard to Kill conference rigorously examined what was at the time a commonly neglected dimension of performance at fires and high-risk operations, the mental aspect. As the LUF founder and lead summit planner, it was important to me that the conference feature a panel of esteemed leaders and operators who would candidly reflect on the mental, emotional, and moral aspects of their near-death experiences in lethal environments. As U.S. Marine, I had the fortune of serving with a considerable number of service members who had demonstrated the ability to thrive in the face of extreme adversity during and following their service in support of the post-9-11 campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan. My buddy and fellow Marine officer, Justin Constantine, was one of those individuals. Justin was truly the epitome of resilience. I asked Justin if he might be willing to contribute as a hard-to-kill summit panelist. He jumped at the opportunity to offer insight and encouragement to fire service leaders. Justin had joined the ranks of the United States Marine Corps in 1998, following completion of his undergraduate education at James Madison University and law school at the University of Denver. Justin served as a staff judge advocate in the Marine Corps on both active duty and later as a reserve officer. In 2006, Justin volunteered for duty as a civil affairs team leader knowing that this assignment would place him on the ground in western Iraq at the height of an unforgiving insurgency that pitted U.S. forces against Iraqi tribes and Al-Qaeda operatives. While on a combat patrol with 3rd Battalion 2nd Marines in October 2006, Justin was severely wounded by an Al-Qaeda sniper's bullet, which inflicted devastating damage to his face. Thanks to the quick actions of Marines under fire and the extreme courage and skill of a U.S. Navy hospital corpsman, Justin survived. Through teamwork, mental fortitude, the gifted hands of surgeons and medical professionals, and tremendous support from family and friends, Justin successfully endured several years of intensive surgeries. To say that Justin's survival and recovery were improbable is an understatement. He incurred catastrophically lethal injuries to his face, head, and airway. Injuries that would not have been survivable in any previous era. Upon recovering from his injuries, Justin started a new job with the U.S. Department of Justice. He was a Truman National Security Project Fellow and was the honor graduate of his Marine Corps Command and Staff College class. Justin also worked with the FBI's counterterrorism team and continued to serve with the Marine Reserves until his retirement. Justin naturally embraced the role of being one of our nation's greatest ambassadors for post-9-11 veterans, as he worked tirelessly to ensure that veterans received the resources and assistance necessary when they came home from war. Though his injuries inhibited his ability to speak, Justin was a fervent, and critical voice for a generation of warfighters that he loved and admired. And speaking of love, Justin also married the love of his life in the fall of 2008, and his work was greatly enhanced by his wife, Dahlia. In recent years, Justin battled cancer. Justin battled cancer with the same courage and spirit that he navigated the physical and emotional wounds resulting from his combat injuries in Iraq. Justin was a warrior until the very end. On Thursday, May 5th, 2022, 
Justin Constantine passed away at the age of 52. U.S. citizens spent this past Memorial Day weekend remembering those courageous Americans who made the ultimate sacrifice to preserve and protect our way of life. Justin Constantine's wounds and passing remind us that the price of freedom is indeed costly. More importantly, for those of us who serve in professions where we play to win despite considerable risk, Justin's example and legacy informs us that we have an opportunity to lead and serve others, even on occasions where we're experiencing adversity and hardship. Though Justin's time on earth was finite, his words of encouragement are timeless. God bless, Justin Constantine. I started my timer to make sure I don't go over because I could bore you to death if you give me the chance here. So uh, Jason asked me to talk to you about developing a resilient mind and survival mindset and some lessons I've learned over the last six years. I'll tell you, this, is a, um, this time of year is, is very emotional for me. I can already feel that, uh, feel it. Um, <clears throat> so I, I apologize for this. Last week was the six-year anniversary of when I was shot, which should be a happy time, but because our crazy human brains work the way they do, it, it has uh, this kind of side effect. Also, with uh, talking about Bill Kerr, I didn't know him as well as Jason did, of course, but I had the utmost respect for him. I can remember many conversations with him, and in particular, I remember his funeral. <clears throat> so uh, I'm very proud to be here today and honored to be with all of you. I'm proud to be wearing this shirt. Um, I'm proud of my relationship with the FDNY. When I was in the hospital, Jason and, and several others uh, of you came to visit me there at work at the FBI. I probably have a hat there from the bomb squad that, that I got. I uh, went to eighth, the Marine Corps um, barracks with some members of FDNY, and then last year I caught up with a few more, at, um, or two years ago when I received an award for the Wounded Warrior Project. And so I'm, I'm proud of that relationship and honored to be here today. Just give you a quick background about where I come from. As you heard, I joined the Marine Corps while I was in law school in 1997. I was a lawyer on active duty, and I served in Okinawa and in Camp Pendleton, California. I left active duty in 2004 and joined the reserves in 2005 to a unit of all lawyers teaching Marines rules of engagement before they deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. The Civil Affairs Group was looking for some uh, Marine officers, so I volunteered for that deployment because I did not have the opportunity to deploy when I was on active duty. Um, and we trained that summer of 2006, and I got to know Jason very well there. Uh, he was my best friend on the deployment, and I learned a lot about small unit leadership from him, uh, frankly, from what he had learned at the Academy and as a Marine and, and obviously as a, a firefighter as well. Uh, I, I had the distinct honor of leading a small team. It was just eight Marines, and we had a, a Navy corpsman attached to us for a while as well. Um, we got to know each other very well, and I, look, I wasn't in Iraq for too long before I came home, but I look at my time in Iraq as a highlight of my career. Not too many lawyers get to lead Marines in a combat environment, and while there I learned a lot about uh, leadership uh, from the battalion commander who I served with, and I learned a lot about myself as well. If I, I had some pictures, if we put the first one, it should be my team. In any event, um, those, those will come up. And our mission as civil affairs, for those of you who don't know, was to help. Uh, my job was to 
developed contracts and contacts with the local Iraqi leadership to help build, rebuild all the basic infrastructure needed for any city, any functioning city. We had destroyed a lot of stuff there, and a lot of it wasn't in good shape anyway, stuff that we take for granted here, like um, electric, running electricity, clean running water, good roads, and well-needed schools. All that stuff was, was destroyed where we were. We were uh, our area of responsibility was west of Fallujah, and where Jason was, and pushing towards the town of Ramadi. Uh, and I worked closely with the battalion commander, and because of that, he put me on his jump team, which was about a dozen Marines who worked together every day. Uh, we went out across the wire probably five times per week. Uh, here's, okay, um, that's fine. This, this is fine to start here. This is a picture of uh, what it looked like in Iraq at the time. Like I said, it was 2006 and trash was everywhere, at least where we were. And that was back from a health standard, but you've heard already Angie talk, talk to you about some of the IEDs in Afghanistan, same thing in Iraq. And you can imagine how easy it was for the insurgents to hide IEDs when you had all that trash everywhere. So that was one of the obstacles we faced. Next slide, please. And this is another, this is a marketplace in downtown. This is giving you an idea of what it looked like, uh, not like Philly or New York. Um, so you see that we have some obstacles there we weren't used to, and also all that sandy, nice, soft stuff in between the roads there makes it very easy to plant IEGs at night, knowing full well we'll be driving down there during the day. Next slide. This is, a, this is what happens when we run over IEGs. And this was on the side of the road there. Our battalion commander chose to leave it there, kind of like the sign that Jason has uh, said to remind us if you were out there trying to kill us every day. This is said we would drive by and wouldn't forget that if we were complacent and weren't checking like Andy's team did, this could happen to us. Next slide. Like I said, one of our jobs was to work on schools, and Saddam Hussein could care less about an educated citizenry. And this is outdoor or outside of a school that we were trying to work with. Because the insurgency was so strong, as Jason described, you know, I really felt bad for the most, the majority of the Iraqi population because they were caught between, you know, they're in Iraq in a hard place. And if they were seen cooperating with us, they would be visited at night by the insurgency with very real death threats. But if they didn't work with us, we couldn't put them to work and couldn't rebuild their towns. And so this is an example of what a school looked like. And in fact, we had to visit the principal at night, uh, like a night mission, just so he wouldn't be seen talking to us. Next slide. And this is the inside of the classroom. The, the teachers wouldn't even be in this picture because they didn't want to be seen talking to us. There's so many kids, it would break your heart to see it, so many kids packed in this little room. There's no, you know, no electricity, so there's no air conditioning. It's probably 120 degrees at the time, or maybe just 100 then, because that was September. Uh, the, the windows were all broken, dirt everywhere, and mold. Um, it was just, it was sad to see. Next slide. This is what I used to look like. This is uh, October 1st of 2006, and I was promoted to major by the battalion commander there, Colonel de Grossier, uh, like who I said I learned a lot from. Uh, and I learned a lot about teamwork, which gets to the first lesson that I want to talk about, which is teamwork is critical for your success and for the others around you. And you've heard that, uh, that's been, that's woven through all the speeches today, but uh, I, I saw it in action as well. Um, the day I was shot, I don't remember most of the day. I remember that morning we had stopped by an Iraqi police station because they had been shot at the night before and the battalion commander wanted to talk to them about how to defend their position a little bit better. 
and we stopped at one of our next uh, forward operating base where our Marines were, and the battalion commander, Colonel DeGrossier, just wanted to check on them and make sure they're doing okay. And I guess I know that we had a reporter with us that day. He was riding the same vehicle as I was. And I guess I remember that, um, I, I guess I noticed that he wasn't walking around, and we knew there was a sniper in the area. So you have to keep moving or else you're a target. And I'm trying to talk quickly here so I can get through this. I, I'm missing most of my teeth and then my tongue, so I know you probably can't understand half what I'm saying, but I'm trying to see clearly for you. Um, and so we got to the next stop, and we got out of the vehicle, and as we walked, um, he told me this later, I talked to him on the phone a couple years ago, as we were walking away from the Humvee, I guess I said, hey, Jay, you really need to move quicker here, or you may get shot by the sniper here or kill a few of the Marines. Based on that, he took a big step forward, and around a split second later, the round came in right where his head had been, hit the wall between us. And apparently before I had a chance to react, he, the next shot came in and hit me behind, right behind my ear and exploded out my face, um, causing obviously catastrophic damage. In fact, the Marines around me, the, when the corpsman came running over, the Marines around me said, don't worry about the Major, he's dead. Because of course I went down, um, it was bleeding a lot. But George Grant, the corpsman, is an amazing young man. Even though the sniper was still, the sniper shot the Marine behind me too, center mask, but it hit his goggles and bounced off. So always wear your, your protective gear when you're out there because that was amazing. Um, I needed goggles, I guess, on the back, like Oakley's or something like that. But, <laughs> but uh, George is amazing. Even though the sniper was still shooting, even though he had all his protective gear on and was probably sweating like crazy, he came over. He, and you know, I had dinner with him last night, and he's a, he's a personal hero of mine. He turned me over, and he he said I wasn't breathing anymore. Even though my face was so destroyed, he performed rescue breathing on me and cut open my throat and performed an emergency tracheotomy on me so I wouldn't drown in my blood. And he did such a good job that the my plastic surgeon at Bethesda later said that he thought another surgeon had done that. He had done such a good job, which is to me fantastic and. And amazing. I mean, you talk about showing extreme courage under fire and it was, frankly a complete disregard for his own life. And George is very humble though and, and when I talk to him about it, he always says, I was just doing my job. I said, well, half of us could do, just do our jobs as well as you did that day. This world would be an amazing place. So, I, you know, I, I don't have enough good things to say about him. Um, so I'm going to show you a couple graphic pictures, but you know, Big boys, you can, you can deal with it. So the next picture, uh, this is what I looked like a week later after I was shot, um, after I'd already had a couple of minor surgeries. This is on the uh, operating table at Bethesda. Uh, when I was, when I, after I was injured, they flew me to Landstuhl, Germany, to the medical treatment facility there. I was there for four days and then on to, uh, on to Bethesda. The next picture is a picture of me uh, a year later after a surgery. They, they took bones out of both of my legs and used them to reconstruct my upper and lower jaws, which had been completely destroyed. In fact, after my first surgery was 18 hours long, and the doctors told um, Dahlia, now my wife, then my girlfriend, that if they waited 12 more hours, my whole face would have collapsed. This is a year later at Johns Hopkins. I had surgery on my left leg when they um, were reconstructing my upper jaw. And this, this picture is... Uh, we'll get off it pretty quickly, but this is a picture of when I was at Bethesda and they were taking up bone out of my leg to use for my jaw. So next picture, 
I don't really like to focus on those pictures. You know, I, I know what happened. We all know what happened. Here's uh, me with George. Uh, I like this picture a whole lot better. And this is, uh, they, the rest of the battalion didn't come back for, I don't know, four months after that or something like that. They were from Camp Lejeune. So Dolly and I uh, got up and drove down to Camp Lejeune to be there with them when they came back, when the buses came back to say welcome home. Uh, I found out from George last night, they were really late that day. We were waiting on them forever. As it turns out, at 30,000 feet, their windshield cracked, and they all thought they were going to crash and die. <laughs> After all they've been through, fortunately, they were okay. It was crazy, but uh, it never stops. But um, they came back, so of course, the first person I went and found was George and had a chance to say thank you for saving my life, and, and we took that picture. Um, so not, not only did George Grant put his life on the line for me that day, but then the, the, the battalion commander, Colonel DeGrossier, was faced with a tough decision. Should he call in an airlift to take me to a, back to the med station, but not know how long the helicopter would take to get there because of conflicting priorities, or drive me to the nearest aid station? At that time, we only drove 15 miles per hour everywhere we went because the roads were littered with the IEDs. And we learned the hard way, if you drive faster than 15 miles per hour, you exponentially increase the chances of flipping end over end and killing, as Jason talked about earlier, killing five people in there. So that was a hard and fast rule. Uh, the commander turned to Lance Corporal Bueller and said, drive him to the aid station as fast as you can. And Lance Corporal Bueller drove me at 70 miles per hour. Again, with complete disregard for his own life, because if we went over an IG, which he would have no way of seeing, uh, probably he would have died, but he drove me 70 miles per hour and, and was a critical part of saving me as well. And so when I talk about teamwork being critical for your success, that's what I think of. I didn't know these guys that well. I fell in on their unit. I, I was there with a, with a civil affairs group. We fell in on the infantry unit. I was a major. They were young guys. We didn't talk very often. We, we said hello and, you know, some formalities. I certainly didn't hang out with them in any regard. Uh, but I was part of their team, they accepted me 100% and put their lives online for me. So when I think about teamwork, that's what I think about. And I think that, that ties in with what you guys are faced with. You have to rely on each other. Listen to what Jeff talked about. He was there battling that fire with a guy he never met before, but their lives were on the line and you have to pull together. And um, I'm living proof of what can happen when you do, do that. Um, next, next slide. This is a picture of Colonel DeGrossier with the local leaders there. They're called imams, and they're religious leaders in the town. And this is a picture I put up here to show more teamwork, because Colonel DeGrossier confiscated a lot of weapons from the local Iraqis because the insurgency was so strong, it was really prob uh, problematic for them to have these weapons, although very normal in their culture to walk around with, you know, lots of firearms. But then he, when he decided they were um, acting in accordance with our security guidelines, he would return the weapons to them, but not to the individuals. He would give them to the imams, and that way empower the imams in the minds or the eyes of the local, local Iraqis, because they saw that he trusted them, and they decided who got those weapons, which is a big deal to them. So Colonel DeGrossier was establishing a teamwork, or establishing a team with his local leaders, which later he would use um, to make sure things were okay so he could continue on to where the real fighting was going on. So I watched that because I was you know, with him all the time and I saw how he was able to establish a good team and network 
with the local leaders, which, you know, which is an important lesson. Even on 9-11, on you read the reports about how many different units were there, but they couldn't talk because the radios weren't synced up. You didn't know who was in charge. Different people were over here and over there. And you have to be able to work together with people who you don't normally work with like this to make, to make things happen. Uh, next slide, please. This is a picture of me with Dahlia, and this will, this will wrap up on the teamwork thing, but Dahlia and I weren't married uh, uh, when I deployed. We had met in 2006 in, in Argentina. We were in the same Spanish immersion course in Argentina. She was in California, and I was from Virginia. We hit it off, um, dated all that summer. When I went to Iraq, she went to pursue her PhD at Cambridge University in England. And so, when I, uh, but we were able to talk with email and, and you know, letters and, and stuff like that, way more than other wars. So we talked every day, more or less. When I came to Germany, I don't really remember this at all, but she was able to come there pretty easily she, since she was in England. Usually service members don't get visitors in Germany. Well, when I left to go back to America to Bethesda, she decided that time to temporarily drop out of her program to come be with me in the hospital. Uh, never mind that going to Going to Cambridge was a lifelong dream of hers, and never mind that she didn't know anyone in Maryland or Virginia where the hospital is, and frankly, the doctors at that point weren't, still weren't even sure I was going to survive. But when I woke up from the coma, um, obviously my life was turned upside down. Dahlia was there and has been the glue, uh, was the glue uh, for me since day one, and has continued to be so. We are a very tight team now. We're much closer than I, than I know we would have ever been had, we, uh, had I not been injured. The Purple Heart Ceremony was in 2007. I still had survivor's guilt. I had it for a long time. I couldn't understand why I was back in America, even when it happened, why I was back in America with my Marines were in Iraq while people were getting killed. And here I was in, in America. I know it doesn't make a lot of sense, but... Um, I was really suffering from that. I didn't want any recognition. I didn't want a, a Purple Heart ceremony. I expected a very small, small thing. Well, General Walker, who I know from um, the legal community, he's a staff judge advocate for the Marine Corps Commandant. He wanted to do something special and recommended that we do something bigger. And so General was a little more important than a major, so we had something bigger. And <laughs> there ended up being about 100 people there. It was very nice, but I thought it was uh, entirely appropriate to have Dahlia up there next to me because she was such a critical part of my recovery. Um, so, which leads me to lesson number two, which applies to um, when I heard um, what Dr. Askin was talking about, uh, which is um, it's okay to ask for help and lean on others for support. And that's something I learned on the back end of my recovery, but I think it's critical for you to embrace as well on the front end as you're training every day for your, for your missions and uh, when you're trying to figure out how will I handle an emergency because you never know when it's going to come because there is no standard fire. I know a lot about asking for help now, although I certainly did not feel comfortable doing so when I was first injured. But at this point, I've, I've received help from probably a dozen veterans groups. And a few years ago, Dahlia and I identified that I had post-traumatic stress and I needed to get some help. And I could have, I figured I could handle it one of two ways. I could, you know, seek help, ask for help that I, that I needed, or I could just try to keep those feelings and, and issues bottled up inside and just let nature take its course. But 
by raising my hand and getting that care that I needed and deserved, that was the best thing I could have done. Because now, I, I think it's a sign of strength to ask for help. I think it, it shows uh, maturity and confidence to identify that you need help and seek it. Now I've been asked by the Marine Corps and the VA and the Wounded Warrior Project and other groups to seek openly about post-traumatic stress to encourage young veterans to get the help that they need. And it means a lot to me um, when I see the positive effects of that. It does a lot for me and my mental health. So just by um, asking for help, it's actually turning into a big positive thing for me as well. Um, but, and I think you should be identifying, you should use that to identify weaknesses that you, you have in your units and, and on your teams. Even um, sometimes we make assumptions about the capabilities of our units. Like I, one thing Jason implemented when we were training, which people looked at him like he was crazy, well, crazier, was that uh, back, at the, back on, in Garrison, we, for a week or something, we wore our flak jackets. And no other units were doing that. And that was for physical conditioning because we talk about, okay, when we get to Iraq, we'll do this, we'll do that. Well, it's easy to say that when you're in 75 degree weather and you know, not carrying, carrying all the gear. So we, we put on the flak jackets to, get, to see what it's like to have 15 more pounds on and then the helmet and then a rifle and a pistol and ammo. Now the other units are doing that and they thought we were crazy, but it's, that's smart. That's taking an assumption and really diving, diving into it to make sure uh, you're doing the right thing. Uh, lesson number three is you're stronger than you think you are. I've learned that on the back end, um, but, but the, and I think it applies again on the front end. In the Marine Corps, they train us very hard to be, as you know, resilient and tough and very efficient. Uh, and when I went to Officer Canada School, I thought I was in really good shape. I had been playing rugby for a long time and worked out a lot, but I lost uh, probably close to 20 pounds in 10 weeks and went back to law school a different person. Uh, and if, frankly, if someone had described the workout regimen we would have had at the end of that 10 weeks, I would have said, Bruce, so there's no way I could do that. And similarly, to a certain extent, when, um, if someone had talked to me about, well, when you go to Iraq and describe what it's like to have 65 pounds of gear and a rifle and a pistol and tons of ammo and water and 120 degree heat and go on, conduct foot patrols four or five hours long, you know, I may have thought, wow, I can't do that. But we're all stronger than we think we are and each one of us is capable of amazing things. Look what Jeff did and look what Ed did and survived. And that, that's amazing. I, I can't imagine doing that. But somehow if we dig deep, we find resources that we didn't know we had before. Um, so but the bottom line is there's nothing you can't accomplish, but it's all that training and, and preparation that you have to do so you fall back on that when the emergency hits. I was on a panel a couple of nights ago for a Wounded Warrior uh, program in D.C., and there was another, another uh, soldier there who was a burn victim. 60% of his body was burned when his vehicle uh, basically exploded from going over a roadside bomb. And you've seen pictures of guys like this where their whole face is burned, but he has an amazing attitude. His hands are burned and everything. Amazing attitude. As far as he's concerned, nothing is wrong. He, he is on a much... Uh, a road to much greater things than before he was injured. It was really moving to hear him. And I feel the same way because doors have been open for me that I never would have had before. I've met cool people. I've had people offer me things. I've been able to help hundreds of wounded warriors, which does so much for me. I know, I know some folks here do stuff with wounded warriors too, so you know what I mean. 
And, and so when I say there's nothing you can't accomplish, it's not just on the front end, it's also overcoming adversity, and then you realize there's so much more out there, even if your life has taken, taken a twist. Um, over the last six years, I've really tried to lead from the front. I learned that from Colonel DeBrosier in Iraq, but I try to lead from the front now and be a, a role model in the Wounded Warrior community. And to me, I make sure that I'm moving in the, in the right direction and it also serves to motivate others who are where I was six years ago. Next slide. And so, like I said, yeah, the first few years are pretty rough, but since then, I've, I've met some cool people and you recognize some of them. There's Gary Sinise in the top left who we've met a number of times, he does a lot for Wounded Warriors. Ty and I met General Petraeus there in the top right several times. Uh, the bottom left, I met Bruce Springsteen and another Marine, Andrew Conard, who was a double amputee, now at uh, Harvard Law and MBA joint program. I guess he's overcoming adversity a little bit. Um, you know, and that was, a, that was actually a Bob Woodruff Foundation event in New York City, and they auctioned off Bruce's guitar there for something insane, like $220,000 or something, and the guy turned around, Andrew had given a speech before the um, little concert started, and the guy paid $220,000 and then turned around and gave the guitar to Andrew. So, you know, that kind of stuff's awesome. And then I was on a, I was on a, a TV this year, Memorial Day, with Joe Montagna at the end, um, and next slide. Oh yeah, I was trying to find a picture of Jason. Uh, he was at my wedding, and, but this is also goes to the same as the previous slide where good things do happen. You can make the best of a, a, a bad situation. You know, Dahlia gave up her PhD program. We're still trying to find a way to get back there together. But we, we got married uh, Thursday. It was our four-year wedding anniversary, and things have been fantastic. But it's, you know, I think a lot of it is because of how close we've become over, over the six years while I recover, and it's really been amazing. Uh, I want to I wrap up here by talking about another Marine officer who went to the Naval Academy. Uh, earlier today, Lieutenant Colonel Shesko talked about developing character and about being a better person. And I, and I agree, that's something we should all work on all the time. I think being a better person will help you be a better firefighter and be a better leader because it's gonna make people look up to you and they're gonna appreciate what you have to say and it's gonna make them emulate you as you do the right thing. When you're stable in your personal life, that carries over to your professional life uh, and you're more reliable and therefore you're also much more resilient when you're doing the right things at the right time. Major Doug Zembiak graduated, and next slide please. Okay, this is Major Doug Zembiak. He graduated from the Naval Academy in 95, and he wrestled there. He was a two-time NCAA All-American, and his coach called him the, the most, or the best conditioned athlete he had ever been around. Uh, Major Zembiak graduated in May of 95, and he was a, a Marine Corps officer until he was killed in action in Iraq in 2007 after serving combat tours in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Kosovo. He was a force, force recon officer in every sense of the word. Uh, he was, a, like Andy, he was a rifle company commander um, in Fallujah, and he led, a, led troops into the, or his company into the first conventional ground assault into Fallujah in 2004. While there, he earned a silver star for his, for his bravery and heroism. He also earned a bronze star, and he was injured twice in battle, so he earned Purple Heart as well. 
his family later found some writings of his, which were called Lessons from My Father, which he had written down in his journal while he was there. And I just want to end up here by reading those to you. Um, here you go. Be a man of principle. Fight for what you believe in. Keep your word. Live with integrity. Be brave. Believe in something bigger than yourself. Serve your country. Teach. Mentor. Give something back to society. Lead from the front. Conquer your fears. Be a good friend. Be humble and be self-confident. Appreciate your friends and family. Be a leader and not a follower. Be valorous on the field of battle. Take responsibility for your actions. Never forget those who are killed and never let rest those who killed them. So these are pretty amazing words in my mind from a guy who's out there in the middle of war to write down in his spare time while he's taking care of 180 uh, soldiers and uh, sailors and Marines. And I've thought about Major Zimbach's words many times during my recovery, and I try to apply them to my personal and professional life, but I think they apply to all of you as well. People in society look up to firemen. Uh, people uh, look up to our firemen as, as leaders in the community and as heroes, and you are. Um, but with that comes responsibility. So Doug's words are things that you should, I think, you should try to strive to as well. Uh, they certainly help me and, and you know, I think they seek for themselves, but they are powerful words. And I'd just like to end on that note. Thank you. It's been an honor to be here with you today. Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit Leadership